Welcome back to Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, Unity in Christ program. If this is your first time listening, my name is Veronica Kim, and I am the host of this program. Easter is only a week away. Have all of our listeners spent this past week meditating on Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection in thankfulness? Easter. This is a very special day, especially for Christians who believe Jesus Christ is our Savior. Although this day should be called the Resurrection Day, strangely, people just call it Easter. The majority of calendars also classify this day as Easter. And in fact, it is very hard to find calendars that mark this day as Resurrection Day. As Easter awaits us, many people inside and outside of the church celebrate this day with colorful eggs, bunnies, and candy. Not many people wonder what the egg and rabbit signify in honor of Easter. The Easter bunny and colorful eggs seem to have no relevance in Jesus' resurrection. However, so many people use this to celebrate this day. Isn't this strange? We'll come back to share more after our first song. Yeah. 
Christmas have become religious days in which people all over the world celebrate. Colorful eggs have become just as famous as Easter Day. However, even within Christian religions, there are not that many people who question why colorful eggs and Easter go together. Although here at Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, we have broadcasted numerous times the true meaning and significance of Easter. But for the people who still may not know, and for the people who do know, I think it will be beneficial to listen again for clarification and confirmation. Easter and eggs. Well, first, to find out the relationship between Easter and eggs, we can seek the answer in the name of this day, Easter. Currently, the whole world, including both Catholics and Protestants, call this day Easter, which really has the meaning of and should be called Resurrection Day. This term Easter has its origin from a goddess of the ancient times in Babylon named Easter. No one really knows the accurate theory behind this. There are about three to four big theories people claim about Easter and eggs. This is why we cannot claim that one is true over the other. But we will be able to find out that these certain theories do exist. According to theologians, the person who built ancient Babylon was Nimrod, who appears in Genesis chapter 10. Nimrod was the great-grandson of Noah and is described as the first of the mighty men to appear on the earth. They say that his wife was Queen Semiramis and was actually a spy sent to Canaan. And because of this reason, some archaeologists argue that Queen Semiramis was fully devoted to King Nimrod because she had the responsibility to spy and watch after him. Nimrod became a godman to the people and Semiramis, upon his death, in order to keep her powers, argued that she was a daughter of a god. She claimed that Nimrod had ascended to the sun and was now to be called Baal, the sun god. She created a mysterious religion and with the help of Satan, set herself up as a goddess. She also claimed that her son Tammuz, who was conceived of her with Nimrod, was believed to be the son of the sun god Baal and became sacred in this ancient religion. When Semiramis became pregnant, she claimed that the child was immaculately conceived. She taught that the moon was a goddess that went through a 28-day cycle and ovulated when full. She further claimed that she came down from the moon in a giant moon egg that fell into a Euphrates river. This was to have happened at the time of the first full moon after the spring equinox. Therefore, Semiramis became known as Ishtar, which is pronounced Easter, and her moon egg became known as Ishtar's egg. When Ishtar became pregnant with Tammuz, it is noted that Tammuz was especially fond of rabbits, which became sacred in this ancient religion. The day Tammuz was killed, Queen Ishtar told the people that Tammuz was now ascended to his father, Baal, and that the two of them 
would be with the worshippers in the sacred candle or lamp flame as Father, Son, and Spirit. At this point, Ishtar was worshipped as the Mother of God and Queen of Heaven and continued to build her mysterious religion. Every year, on the first Sunday after the first moon, after the spring equinox, a celebration was held. It was Ishtar Sunday and was celebrated with rabbits and eggs. We now see how the Easter rabbit and eggs have no relevance with Easter, the day in which we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, also known as the Resurrection Day. Nowhere in the Bible does it have evidence to support that the resurrection has any relationship with eggs and rabbits. Yet why do Christians still celebrate this day with such things? As the pagan customs were introduced to Roman Catholicism, the two have since been strangely intertwined and celebrated together. In reality, the Roman Catholics do not eat eggs or fish during the 40 days before Easter. They begin to eat them again on the day of Easter. Therefore, coloring and decorating the eggs in honor of celebrating the day in which they begin to eat them again. However, Christians began to incorporate this idea, and therefore every Easter Sunday, they celebrate this day with colorfully dyed eggs, whether or not it is within the Catholic Church or Protestant Church's belief. All the Christian religions celebrate this day in honor of Jesus Christ's resurrection. However, the patterns and ways of celebrating this day have slowly evolved into the pagan religion's ways. Crown, no burden, gray can hold you 
trampling over the spiders Come awake, come awake Come and rise up from the grave Christ is risen from the dead We are one with him again Come awake, come awake Come and rise up from the grave Oh, death, where is your sting? sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is The Mystery of Mercy, Part 1, based on Ruth. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, let me invite you to open with me to Ruth chapter 1 in the Old Testament, 10 years ago yesterday, I flew home from preaching at a conference in New Mexico. This was before I had moved here, and when I arrived home to Heather in New Orleans, I started unpacking my things, and not long thereafter, I received a call from my younger brother, Adam, in Atlanta, where my parents lived. And Adam's voice was shaking. And he said, David, it's dad. You need to pray for dad. And all of a sudden, my attention was fixed on this stammering voice on the other end of the phone. 
apart from Heather, my dad was my best friend and biggest fan, I guess you could say, and so my mind was just racing as Adam kept talking. He said, David, I don't know what's wrong. The ambulance is here. The doctors are putting him on a stretcher. I don't know what's going on. You just need to, to pray. And so I said I would. Adam hung up the phone, and immediately I fell to my knees. And I cried out to God with deeper intensity and greater urgency than I had ever prayed for anything before. Tears just streaming from my eyes. I was pleading with God for my dad's life. As far as we knew, he was in the best health he'd been in for years, so not knowing or understanding what was going on, and just begged God to heal whatever was wrong in my dad. The next half hour felt like half a day as I waited, just holding on to the phone in my hand while I prayed, and finally it rang. This time it was my older brother, Steve, on the other end of the line. He was at the hospital, and I can still hear the sound of that conversation today. He said, David, I said, yes, I was dad. And after a long pause, my strong big brother spoke with a soft, trembling cry, and he said, dad is dead. And I wept uncontrollably. Steve explained to me that while dad was lying on the couch that night, he suddenly started gasping for breath. And by the time the ambulance even arrived, just a few minutes later, he had died of a severe heart attack. So yesterday, my whole family was in town here together. We spent time looking at pictures and reliving memories, and it was, it was so much fun. But can I just be honest with you? I really miss my dad. And I really wish he was here. And I know I'm not alone. So I know I'm standing in a room surrounded by people who really wish someone in your life was still there. And you know, we talk all the time around here about the sovereignty of God in all things. And I am convinced, firmly convinced, that the sovereignty of God is a rock-solid foundation to stand on in all things. But it does make you wonder sometimes, doesn't it? Why does God ordain some of the things that he ordains? The providence of God is often perplexing. And the mercy of God sure seems mysterious sometimes. The 18th century hymn writer, William Cooper, came, came to know Christ in an insane asylum. And he suffered with bouts of depression his entire life. But when he came to Christ, he discovered that amidst dark days, when faced with storm clouds of trial and difficulty, God takes those same storm clouds and uses them to rain down showers of mercy and grace. 
So we pinned a hymn called God Moves in a Mysterious Way, and this is what it says. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purpose will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan, scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. Is that true? Our storm clouds of trial and difficulty and hurt and pain and grief that we dread really filled with mercy that will break with blessings on our head. Behind God's frowning providence on earth is there really a smiling face in heaven? And how can we know that the bud which tastes so bitter will blossom sweet as a flower. I know that so many of you in the past, or maybe even some of you today, have walked or are walking through storm clouds of trial and difficulty, pain and hurt, maybe grief, and you have asked, or maybe right now are asking questions about what God is doing in your life, wondering why God has done what he has done or why God is doing what he is doing. And even if you've not walked through storm clouds or are not walking through storm clouds at this moment, such clouds likely lie ahead somewhere maybe soon in your life. So how are we to understand the perplexing providence of God? How are we to trust God let alone worship God when His mercy seems so mysterious, when His ways often seem so bewildering. So these are some of the questions lying behind one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture, the book of Ruth. I, I know I have preached on this book before. It was back in 2009. But I just don't think it's a coincidence that we would come to this book in our Bible reading this week even personally for me, it's the same time that I'm freshly processing through grief and pain in my own life. So tonight, I want to invite you to journey with me, maybe journey back with me into this story. Now, journey is the right word. What I want us to do is to read it, particularly the first two chapters, pretty deliberately together. So I want to do pause along the way. So we're going to read just like a verse, think about it, another verse, think about it. Instead of just reading all the way through the text, we're going to pause along the way because I want to point out various elements of the story. Some that are obvious, 
Others that are not so obvious because we don't have the benefit of hearing the story read in its original language. So the author of the book of Ruth, which we're not sure who it is, but we know that the author is a brilliant storyteller and uses literary figures and features throughout the story to draw our attention to particular details. So I want to help serve us in that way. We'll, we'll move slowly on a journey through the story. You might make notes along the way as we walk through chapter 1. And then when we get to chapter 2, I want to show you just four simple characteristics of a redeemer in the book of Ruth. So that's a significant concept, really the most significant word in the book of Ruth. So we'll see it at the end of chapter 2, but I want to show you in chapter 2 four characteristics of a redeemer. And in the process, my prayer is that we would realize that this is not just a story about Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. Instead, this is a story that's very familiar to our stories in this room. And it's a story about how God weaves together the details of our lives to show his love and his mercy, even in the midst of pain and difficulty. So, Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. All right, keep in mind, this is only one of two books in the Bible named after a woman, the other being Esther. And this is the only book in the Old Testament named after a non-Jew. So, from, from the title, we already got from the uniqueness of this book, that leads us into the first, first verse. And the writer tells us, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. Okay, let's, let's pause there. Just get the setting of the story. So setting, time. So the author tells us that Ruth follows the books of Joshua and Judges, when the judges ruled, which is part of what we read over the last few weeks. We saw the book of Joshua, the people of God, entering into the land that God had promised them for centuries. In the book of Judges, we see how when they entered that land, they turned from God time and time and time again. The book of Judges is such a hard book to read, isn't it? Just the depravity of man on display in horrifying ways. In the last verse, if you turn back to the end of Judges, you remember what, how, how Judges ended, Judges 21, 25, in these, those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And then you pick up in the days when the Judges ruled. So this was, these were dark days as the people of God were engrossed in their sin, doing whatever they wanted, looking to no king to lead them, including God. So that was the time. Now notice the place. The place where the story begins here, Ruth begins, is Bethlehem. And now, now, the name Bethlehem means the house of bread. But the problem is there was no bread in Bethlehem. There was famine in the land. A reality that, by God's grace, most of us in this room have no experience with personally. Sure, we, we get hungry. We may even say, I'm starving or I'm famished. But we have no idea what we're saying. We have hardly any idea, by God's grace, of what it means to be literally without food as hundreds of millions of people are around the world wondering if they will live, wondering if their children will survive. I'm praying particularly for 50,000 Yazidi people stranded without food and water on a mountaintop near Sinjar, Iraq right now, forced to flee their homes due to Islamic persecution. It's a famine in Bethlehem. Now, that time and place leads a Jewish man to leave his homeland to go to a foreign land 
in search of food for his family. So he goes to Moab. Now, Moab is not just a foreign land geographically, but a foreign land historically, spiritually. If you remember back in Genesis, we were reading through there in Genesis 19, the Moabites began when Lot had an incestuous relationship with his daughter. From the start, these were an outcast people. Then we get to Numbers, we find when the people of God sought to pass through Moab, they faced resistance from the Moabites, and the Moabite women seduced Jewish men into all sorts of sexual immorality, which resulted in over 24,000 Israelites dying. These Moabites were immoral, idolatrous, and in Deuteronomy 23, God declared that no Moabite could enter into the assembly of the Lord down to the 10th generation. So needless to say, for a Jewish man, Take his family and move to Moab was shameful, to say the least. All of that background in verse 1 that then, then leads into verse 2, introduction of characters. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went in the country of Moab and remained there. Side note here, Elimelech's name means God is king. So in a day of the judges where there had no king, the reality is there was a king who was reigning and we're told that from the beginning of the story. Now, the next few verses we're about to read introduce tragedy into the heart of the story. And this is one of those places where the language in the Hebrew is particularly helpful. We don't necessarily get it quite as much in the English, but there's a staccato style here. So it's, it's terse, quick, almost unfeeling. We don't have details. We don't have emotions. We just got cold, hard, blunt, heavy facts, one after another, verses three through five. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. In a matter of three verses, you have 10 years of torrential tragedy. And just like this, this family of four Israelites is down to one. First, you have Elimelech, the leader of the family who brought them into this strange land. He dies. Naomi left as a widow in Moab, raising two sons. Those two sons marry Moabite women. Remember the history there. Moabite women representing those who had seduced Israelite men into idolatry and immorality. Moabite women who aren't even allowed into the assembly of the Lord. And then after 10 years, Naomi's sons, Malon and Kilion, both die. So just imagine, we don't know if they died at the same time or one soon after the other, but talk about unexpected tragedy. Tragedy that's only heightened by the fact that Naomi is not only left now without her husband and her two sons, but she finds herself in a foreign land with two Moabite women, and neither of them has any heir to carry on their family, which is the curse of all curses. In the ancient Near East, particularly in Israel, there was no greater tragedy than for a family to cease to exist. And this sets up the ultimate problem in the book, because Naomi's family now teeters on extinction. Now, author emphasizes this. Did you notice in verse 5, when he when he talks about Naomi, he doesn't mention her name. Both Malon and Kilion died, so the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. The, the woman, ver, Naomi has, has now virtually lost her identity. She's an aged woman with two barren daughters-in-law from Moab. Moab. She has no hope, no security, no, 
No other family, no future, nothing. We've got to feel the weight of what's just happened in verse 3, 4, and 5 in order to feel the wonder of what's about to happen in verse 6. So at a time when a suffering woman and her two foreign daughters-in-law find themselves with no provision, no security, no home, no future, with nothing in utter hopelessness. Verse 6 tells us, she rose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. You might circle the Lord there. It's the first time God is mentioned in the story. The Lord, the covenant-keeping God, Yahweh, had visited his people in Bethlehem with aid. He had restored Bethlehem to the house of bread that it was intended to be. And this is one of those verses that just has figurative alliteration that just jumps off the page and beautiful language that stands in stark contrast to the, the tra- tra- tragic verses that have led up to this. So verse 7 says, she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Now, what we're about to read is the first conversation in the book of Ruth, which is important because some of the most significant moments in the book of Ruth happen in the context of conversation. It's interesting, you think about it, up till now we've been through 10 years of torrential tragedy. All of these things have happened, people have died, marrying mobile and nobody's even said a word until we get to verse 8 and this is what Naomi says to her two daughters-in-law go return each of you to her mother's house may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me the Lord grant that you may find rest each of you in the house of her husband now pause there for a second this is more than just a goodbye and God bless you This is Naomi thanking these two women for their kindness to her. You can only imagine what these three women have been through together. Ruth and Orpah leaving their people to marry Israelite men now set apart from other Moabites, living in years of barrenness, both of them no children, only to see their husbands die. They lived, they struggled, they cried, they mourned together for years. And so Naomi turns to bless them and to free them up from any responsibility they felt to stay with her. She says, you deserve better. You deserve husbands and a family, not to be stuck with me, an aged widow, with nothing. You can only imagine the emotion in the rest of the verse. She says, she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. This is powerful emotion here. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. He said, we're going to go with you. Tears flowing from their eyes. And so Naomi looks back at them and builds an argument for why they didn't need to do that. And the argument is pretty convincing. Naomi said in verse 11, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. In other words, if they stay in Moab, they can find another husband, they can have a family, they can live happily ever after. If they come with Naomi, they'll have nothing. The, The background here for why Naomi starts talking about the fact that she has no husband and no sons 
is because Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10, had provided for situations like this. If there was a childless widow, then the brother of that husband would take the wife under his care and provide for her in his family. So if Naomi had other sons, they could provide for Orpah and Ruth. But Naomi's pointing out the obvious. She doesn't have any sons. She doesn't even have a husband. And if she did and would have a son that day, Orpah and Ruth could never wait long enough to be cared for by her son. So Naomi's saying to them, just as there is no hope for me, there will be no hope for you if you stay with me. And it's heightened in the last phrase there when she says to them, obviously the Lord's hand is against me. And the implication is, if you stay with me, the Lord's hand will be against you too. Why would you want to go with Naomi? You know, when I had read this, this passage before, I had thought this was, it almost sounds kind of rude of Naomi. Does she not want them? But the reality is Naomi's words here are a reflection of kindness. She's saying here, stay here. Have a husband. Don't tie up your lot with mine. So read the effect of the speech in verse 14. They lifted up their voices and wept again. It's powerful, potent emotion. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So Orpah goes, but Ruth stays. Not just stays, she clings. It's the same word that's used in Genesis 2, 24 to describe how a man and woman will leave their father and mother and be united together in marriage. And in the middle of tears, Naomi says, verse 15, see your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. She's urging her not to go. And that sets the stage for one of the most memorable speeches in all of the Bible. It's love and commitment and courage and beauty and devotion wrapped into one as Ruth looks back at Naomi and said, verse 16, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. You know, I find it interesting that these words are often used in wedding vows. And they're a pretty incredible picture of commitment, and if you used them at your wedding, I think that's great. But the reality is, this is a daughter-in-law speaking to her mother-in-law. I'll tell you what I don't often hear at weddings, like in-laws speaking to each other like this. <laughs> the language is, is simple, but it's profound. As the audience, we can just also, almost imagine Ruth loosening her embrace on Naomi, looking in her eyes and saying, don't talk me out of this. I am committed to you as your God is my witness I am committed to you and God will judge me if anything keeps me from holding fast to this commitment in a single moment Ruth forsakes everything her homeland her people her gods her religion her safety her future her destiny everything to go with Naomi and not just for this life there was an intimate connection in Near Eastern thought and, and, and where you were buried and what that effect that would have on your afterlife. So this is Ruth saying, I'm going to be buried with you, with your people under your God. This was the ultimate commitment, not just to Naomi, but to Naomi's God. 
And her words are so strong, they're so poignant that they silence Naomi. Verse 18 says, when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. And we don't see another word until they get to Bethlehem. You just imagine, I, I, I just imagine what would that journey have been like? Did they talk much? Or is it just a lot of silent contemplation? Verse 19 picks up as they arrive in Bethlehem. The two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Now, we've, let's, let's put ourselves, and just so we're going to put ourselves in Ruth's shoes, let's start in Naomi's shoes. Just imagine walking into the city of Bethlehem as Naomi. This city that years before your husband led you to leave to go off to Moab. You retreated from the promised land to go into a pagan land. And now you're coming back from Moab and you don't have a husband anymore and you don't have your sons anymore. All you have is a Moabite woman with you. And the word gets out. Hey, Naomi is back. So they come out. Now, now, they say, is this Naomi? Is this, this really Naomi? And Naomi's name means pleasant. So listen to what happens as soon as they ask, is this the pleasant one? Naomi responds, verse 20, she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi. When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. How's that for a greeting after 10 years away? You go up eagerly to this woman who you've missed and you say, hey, you're back, Naomi. And all of a sudden she looks at me and she says, did you just call me Naomi? Pleasant? Nothing could be further from the truth. My name is Bitter. I left full with everything I loved, everything that was most important to me, and I've come back with nothing. And based on these last words from Naomi in chapter one, our impression of her may not be too positive, but we've got to be careful not to be too hard on her. Think about all that she's been through, right? The death of her husband, the marriage of her sons, the Moabite women, the death of her sons, no heir in her family. She has experienced blow after blow and tragedy after tragedy, and she's hurting. And what's interesting is, don't miss this, in all of this, the writer never indicates any sin in Naomi's life that has led to this point. She'd followed her husband's leadership. She'd cared for her sons and her daughters-in-law. Obviously, we know she's not perfect, but somewhat similar to Job. This is a picture of seemingly unwarranted, mysterious suffering that evokes the question, why? That's why I love the honesty of Scripture. This is no flippant faith here. This is wrestling, struggling, fighting faith. And Naomi's words at the end of chapter 1, referring to herself as Mara, are tough. But they're honest. Do you ever feel this way? Do you ever feel like the providence of God has been hard on you? Do you ever feel like the weight of your circumstances feels too heavy to bear? This is a woman with honest hurt that I'm guessing many people in this room, if we're honest, can identify with. So that's Naomi's perspective. And then just imagine this scene from Ruth's shoes. So you know, Naomi's standing there in front of a group of women 
You're standing by her side. And she says to them, look at me. I have come back with nothing. The Lord has brought only calamity upon me. And as she says these words to these women, their eyes shift from looking at Naomi to looking at you. And you immediately drop your head and look at the ground because you are a picture of the Lord's affliction. You represent the misfortune that the Almighty brings. It's a heavy scene.
This is for those of you that would like to raise your children instilling God's values and His words into their lives. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries can send you CDs of our children's program. The program includes Let's Read the Bible, Praise Time, Pray Time, and Story Time. If any of you are interested in the program, please contact the office or email us to receive the CD. I hope that this program can spread out through our English speaking children. Our office number is 602 866 8999, and email address is heartandsoul.orgmail.com. Following is a program called If Anyone Wishes to Come After Me. Hello, listeners. This is Brian Winston, your host of the series If Anyone Wishes to Come After Me. Do you remember from last week when Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 22, that they will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogues, brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and Gentiles, and that all men will hate you because of me? In the past week, did you think about how you would react and if you would follow Jesus, even if he said all that to you? When we decide to follow Jesus, we understand that it comes with persecution and hardships. There are some people that say Jesus died on the cross for us, going through all the persecution and hardships, and that it is why we no longer need to go through the persecution and oppression ourselves. We just need to enjoy life knowing that Jesus blessed us by giving us his life. Well, the meaning of receiving blessing through Jesus' death, can have different meanings. The Bible does not promise us this theory of just enjoying life and living through the blessings given to us by Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verse 17, tells us that this way of thinking is wrong. It says, And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. The Bible states that followers of Christ must go through persecution and oppression like Jesus. It does not mean that there are no more hardships in life and just happiness when we decide to follow Jesus. Following Jesus means that we accept the fact that our life will be met with persecution and hardships. Why do we accept hardship? Romans chapter 8, verse 17 says that we are the heirs and must go through the hardship like Jesus to be glorified like him. Verse 18 tells us that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It is a given truth that one who follows Jesus must go through oppression in the world. Jesus actually repeats this to us many times. Let's read Matthew chapter 10 verses 24 through 31 together. A student is not above his teacher, 
and a servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household. So do not be afraid of them. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. We often read these verses and take it to mean that since God knows the number of hairs on our head, that God knows all that is happening in our lives and that everything will go well. We then apply that God will always take care of us. Of course, this way of thinking is not entirely wrong. It is true that God, who knows everything about us, does take care of us. However, Jesus did not say these words to us just to let us know that everything will be fine since God is looking after us. First, Jesus talks about the relationship between the student and the teacher. He tells us in verse 24 that a student is not above the teacher. The meaning of this is explained in verse 25. He tells us it is enough for the student to be like his teacher. This does not mean that the student will become high as the teacher, but that the student will go through the same persecution and oppression as the teacher. Jesus compares himself to the master. If people call me the son of God, Beelzebub, who the Gentiles believe ruled hell, then how much more the member of the household or my disciples? Jesus is telling us that the ones that don't even recognize who I am will not leave you alone either. How do you think the disciples felt after hearing these words from Jesus? The verses we read from Matthew today are the very verses that follow the ones we read last week. Jesus tells his disciple that he is sending them like sheep among wolves. Brother will betray brother to death, father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. And all men will hate you. You do not understand now, but I will be handed over to the Gentiles, persecuted, beaten, and hung on the cross. All this will happen to me, the teacher, so these things will happen to all of you, the students as well. Don't you think that the disciples were scared after listening to Jesus' words? And don't you think that they became even more scared after watching Jesus get beaten and die on the cross? This is why Jesus says these words to the disciples. So do not be afraid of them. He tells them that they can kill your body, but they cannot kill your soul. We should not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather, be afraid of God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus then goes on to tell us something very important. One penny, one sixteenth of a dandelion, one sixteenth of one's daily pay, even two sparrows sold at this cheap price will not die without the permission from God. What is this telling us? 
Yes, Jesus is telling us that the one who holds our lives in his hands is God. We cannot die without permission from God, and we cannot live without God's permission as well. Please remember these words. If you remember these words, when hardships come your way, when you get persecuted, and when even death comes your way, we do not have to be afraid. Why should we not be afraid? Because God gave us the permission. He allowed for all those things to happen to us. Will God ever let things happen to us that we cannot handle? God who knows the numbers of hairs on our head and the one who knows how much faith and belief that we carry in our hearts, do you think he will allow for things that we can't handle to occur? That will not happen. God who sent his son to die on the cross for us will not let us go through hardships and persecutions that we cannot handle, leading to loss of faith in life. The many in faith that came before us realized this and were not afraid when they were met with death because God gave them permission. We must understand and believe in this to follow Jesus. It is God that is holding all of our lives and happenings in his hands. When we realize this truth, only then can we follow Jesus. I hope that you take the next week, not just to understand these words, but to pray that you will live your life in faith according to these words. Thank you for listening, and we hope that you join us next time as we continue our series, If Anyone Wishes to Come After Me.
Resurrection Day celebrated during the times of Jesus. Based on the words of the biblical theologians, the celebrations of the resurrection reflected in the Bible was celebrated by eating bread. After Jesus Christ sacrificed his life, died on the cross, and was resurrected after three days, the disciples were not able to recognize Jesus as he appeared before them. At this time, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. We see this in the scriptures of Luke chapter 24, verses 30 and 31. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And from here on, after recognizing the resurrected Jesus, the disciples celebrated this day as they broke bread. Easter is not a day in which we celebrate with a rabbit and share colorful eggs. It is a day in which we remember that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and was resurrected and came back so that we may be free from death. It is a day in which we celebrate this great event and are thankful. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. 
you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. These are the scriptures of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 16 through 18. The crucial point of the event of Jesus' resurrection is the cross. It did not end by his death on the cross, but the fact that he rose again and gave us hope. If there was no resurrection, our faith would be worthless and we would still be in our sins. I hope that we may really think about what the true meaning of Easter is. That this Easter, we may realize that the celebration is focused on Jesus Christ and not eggs or the Easter bunny and that we may confess our love and gratitude towards Him. We will now wrap up Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, as it has been my pleasure to share the true meaning of Easter, Resurrection Day, with you. I hope to see you this time again next week, and God bless.
And on the 